You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, Episode 96. I'm Kimberly Manafra. This week, our guests are Eric Stern and Donovan Mathias. Eric is a research scientist here at Ames who supports the agency's Planetary Defense Initiative. And Donovan is an aerospace engineer in the Ames NASA Advanced Supercomputing Division. Eric and Donovan are talking about the research they conduct on meteor entry and breakup to better understand how these near-Earth objects burn off when they enter the Earth's atmosphere and the potential risk they pose. We'll begin our conversation with Donovan Mathias. yourself. How did you actually end up at NASA? Well, when I was going through high school and trying to decide what I wanted to do when I grew up, um, I was really interested in aerodynamics, mm-hmm. you know, cars, motorcycles, airplanes. I grew up in a racing household, so my dad always really liked to talk about the race cars. And so I think that's what actually brought me into the field. Uh, when I was going through college and even graduate school, I was a low-speed aerodynamicist. Nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> I liked airplanes. I liked cars like racing vehicles. Mm-hmm. Now, racing, you mean like NASCAR or Indy 500 or uh, Grand Prix? or All of them. Oh, I mean, wow. We're a big this Formula the, One household. But, now you're uh, hitting a chord in my heart. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Okay. That was definitely a big part of growing mm-hmm. up. Now, did you actually get to race too or uh, as a kid? We raced go-karts. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's yeah. how this starts. That's right. That's awesome. And then took a different path. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, rockets to race cars. There's actually a thing about NASA on that, so we may look that up later. Okay. Um, Well, thank you, Donovan. How about you, Eric? How did you get, what landed you here? Um, Well, I've always been interested in space, and I was inspired by NASA, Mm -hmm. uh, the shuttle and whatnot when I was a young kid. Um, And I I thought for a long time that I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Wow. Um, But when it came time to... To go to school, I, I didn't think I was really like graduate school material, and I knew mm-hmm. that I would need that. So I decided to do aerospace engineering because I thought it would provide me a pathway to, to get into NASA um, without having to go to graduate school. I ended up going to graduate school anyway uh, <laughs> and got my PhD, um, but uh, ended up where I wanted to be um, and along the way discovered uh, a love for computational fluid dynamics and oh, wow. and hypersonics and and uh, some ent- uh, reentry like we'll talk about. So today. you were really like focused on this is what I want to do from a very young age. So you ended up basically following that path, even though you probably thought it was going to take you a different direction. You ended up where you really wanted to be. Yeah, I, I kind of uh, happened into a path that that turned out to be a more direct route to, mm-hmm. to get where I wanted to be. Um, I kind of thought it would be uh, pretty difficult, um, you know, going the, the fundamental science route. Right. Um, and as it turns out, you know, in graduate school, I uh, got hooked in with my advisor who um, was very plugged in with NASA. And um, that was a, just a clear path to NASA and in particular Ames. I always wanted to work here specifically. So uh, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, that's amazing. There's so many people out there, even when I was growing up, that thought they'd be something and they're complete opposites about four or five times even. So, you know, that very, yeah, that's pretty cool that you were able to actually get in and and master your plan, right? Yeah. And then then through this, through the asteroid project, Mm -hmm. it's great because, you know, I get to get exposed to to that planetary mm-hmm. science and fundamental science again, even though I, you know, I mm-hmm. thought I'd be to building spaceships with my uh, <laughs> education. 
No, that's pretty cool. Well, yeah. okay, so you obviously did what you said you were going to do. What about you, Donovan? How? What are you doing now at NASA? Like, what is the job that you're actually working on right now? So most of what I do is applying computational tools to risk assessment. Oh, okay. And the risk assessment could be human spaceflight. So if there's an event on the launch vehicle as we're sending humans to space, you know, what do we have to do to detect that environment, that failure, and get the crew safely away? Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of support of campaign missions, mm-hmm. um, and then what the project we're talking about today, the asteroid risk assessment. So basically, my background was also computational fluid dynamics, Perfect. and we're morphing that to answer questions as they relate to decisions involving risk, risk mitigation. Now, you mentioned asteroid threat assessment, right? Yeah. Yes. What exactly is that, and how are you both linked in that? So at Ames, we have what we call the Asteroid Threat Assessment Project. Okay. Uh, it was now in our fourth year, we support the Planetary Defense Coordination Office in the Planetary Science Division at NASA headquarters Wow. as okay. part of the Science Mission Directorate. Um, so the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, their job is to coordinate efforts among national agencies within the U.S., whether it be emergency managers mm-hmm. or Department of Energy Defense that could be involved if we detect an object that's going to hit us. Uh, also to represent the U.S. in the United Nations Forum and coordinate international responses. Should mm-hmm. there be an asteroid that is on an impact trajectory to the Earth that mm-hmm. we detect and that is large enough that it could possibly cause damage to the civilization? Already I'm, I'm starting to get a little nervous about what could happen. I mean, and you guys could either assess it early or have predictions of what, you know, might occur. Is that what So our project would be more about the consequences should okay. the event happen. Uh, there are other groups within NASA that look at surveys. A lot of effort is spent into cataloging and detecting asteroids you know, mm-hmm. that could potentially become hazardous that cross the Earth's orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's obviously many, many asteroids in space. We don't worry from a risk assessment about many of them. Mm-hmm. A small percentage are in a Earth crossing, uh, Earth orbit crossing trajectory, and so the sent, the telescopes will be looking mm-hmm. at those to try to pick them out. So our job is to do the assessment. Okay. Should an object be on a trajectory that would impact, we look at its characteristics both from a probabilistic standpoint, because a lot of times you'll detect an object coming in and all you'll see is a dot in the sky. Right. That's what I think of (laughs) right now. Right. And the dot in the sky is through a telescope. It's not something that we would obviously see. Very, very faint. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we, to do the potential risk assessment, we would need to know best guess on how big it is, how fast it's going, uh, how dense it is, so how heavy and massive the object would be. Uh, Once we have that information, then we have groups within our ATAP, which is the Asteroid Threat Mm -hmm. Assessment Project, that look at how likely the different characteristics are, what the entry and breakup when the object hits the atmosphere, which Mm -hmm. Eric will talk more about, Mm -hmm. um, how it breaks up and deposits the energy into the the Earth's atmosphere. That energy deposited then creates things like heat and Mm -hmm. pressure waves that can Mm -hmm. cause damage on the ground. Um, and then we bring all of that together and integrate it into a, how likely our different scenarios happen. And is that when the supercomputers come in to use, you mentioned simulations in, in CFD, computational fluid dynamics. Is that when that happens, you bring that data in and, and visualize it through so, data analysis? Um, most of the supercomputing application would be on the entry modeling. Okay. And then also once we have how the energy is deposited in the atmosphere, Mm because the asteroid comes in at a very high speed and it slows down Mm -hmm. and that energy has to go somewhere. 
and it goes into either light, heat, or pressure waves moving through the Earth's atmosphere. How that process happens and how those pressure waves propagate to the ground is really where we spent most of our supercomputing uh, applications so far. Whoa. Okay. All right, Eric. Now, are you going and finding materials out in the fields of like, Arizona somewhere, or how do you get samples to even I, I wish. I, I hope one day I get to go on to, <laughs> to one of those uh, expeditions. And if we talk about Tunguska, then... Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, um, we acquire, uh, you know, meteorite samples um, from meteorite dealers. Cool. Which is okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, for my um, component, you know, we my group really gets in into the weeds on um, on the entry modeling mm-hmm. aspect of it. Um, and so, you know, we're using the same computational fluid dynamics tools um, and material modeling tools that we use to model uh, entry spacecraft mm-hmm. to model uh, meteor entry. What um, does that mean? Tools. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> like, we have, Cracking them open? Uh, yeah, burned? sorry. But, by that, I mean, you know, software. Oh, um, okay. You know, we have, uh, because of the specialized nature of, of doing spacecraft entry modeling, mm-hmm. we've written all that software here at, at Ames. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we're applying um, that software to this new problem which is similar in some ways, but mm-hmm. different in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so uh, most of the people that are on the entry modeling team within ATEP are running simulations mm-hmm. uh, using this high-fidelity software that we've developed here. And what, what predictions or at least assessments are you looking at? Are you looking at size at entry or trying to understand how big they could be as they approach Earth? Or what exactly... Uh, is involved in the assessment beyond, you know, after the fact. Yeah, it probably makes sense to to start with um, Mm -hmm. when the asteroid hits the the Earth's atmosphere. And that's where the the fun begins, um, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, You know, the the air around the asteroid, Mm -hmm. similar to the way it would be with a spacecraft, begins to to heat up. Mm -hmm. um, And that, in turn, um, causes the... Uh, material to to melt and and vaporize. Um, So really the first effect that you're trying to capture, which is important Mm -hmm. um, to us trying to understand the risk, is um, how the mass of the object will evolve as it passes through the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that's a big focus for us um, to model both the airflow around Mm -hmm. the meteor and to model the way the material reacts to the hot gas. Um, we've done a lot of work on that in the arc jet and with simulations. Um, and then from there, as you get deeper in the atmosphere, uh, the pressure becomes very significant um, mm-hmm. on the object, uh, which causes it to start to break up. Um, and that's when mm-hmm. um, the energy of the object uh, really gets deposited um, in the atmosphere at a high rate. And that's kind of where we hand off to one of the other teams that's working mm-hmm. on uh, modeling the hazards. And you mentioned something about an arc jet. What, what's that? So, um, our, uh, NASA Ames, uh, we're fortunate to have a premier uh, facility for um, doing, uh, it's essentially a very high energy wind tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we use that 
continuously, um, it's probably running right now, to assess spacecraft um, thermal protection system materials. Okay. Um, again, these enter the atmosphere at very high rate of speed and need to withstand a lot of heat. Uh, this is one of the only facilities where we can get close to um, a similar environment as you would uh, have during entry. Um, so we've actually taken that and used it to try to uh, start to understand what happens to, to meteorites um, when they pass through the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've recently done um, some pretty unique experiments um, using that uh, that facility um, where we we placed a, a meteorite sample um, in the wind tunnel. Oh, cool. And you can see it uh, melt and, right. and, and vaporize. Um, and you can kind of imagine through those movies what... Um, <laughs> entry what looks an actual like. <laughs> uh, uh, meteor entry looks like. Wow, uh, probably that's crazy. For the, uh, the first time. So. Are you talking about like an uh, actual size, like a big hand you can hold it in your hand or bigger? What size are you testing in the? Uh, the samples that we tested were about an inch in diameter. Oh wow! Um, okay. Now, if uh, if you had an inch um, uh, meteor that came into the to the atmosphere, it, it would it would be a pretty bright event. Mm-hmm. Um, you could certainly see it. Um, if you were fortunate enough to be looking at the sky at that time. Really? Um, An inch so, in size? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Usually crazy. the shooting stars that you see are on the order of millimeters or something. Wow. I don't think I ever thought the size was that small. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's like thumbnail size. size but you is, could see that? <laughs> size is small. Velocity is very large. Yeah, that's <laughs> crazy. Wow. So in terms of the threat assessment project, or at least the effort at, at, at NASA, where did that request come from? Is that something we came up with, or is that something the you know Congress or government asked us to do? How did that come about? Is there a need? Should we be worried? <laughs> is there some crazy event that we're looking to? <laughs> well, let's come back to that. Maybe I know. That's I'm a like, good place I'm really to, freaking yeah. out all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, it's not. We're not going to send Bruce Willis to the asteroid <laughs> to blow it up. Um, We'll come back to some right. of the maybe some of the media compared to right, the, the right. scientific. That might be nice version. to straighten out for our listeners. Right. <laughs> uh, so NASA has a charter um, given by a White House memo. Okay. So NASA is the lead federal agency in the U.S. Wow. to look at the potential threat and to uh, detect the likelihood and to mm-hmm. catalog and characterize the potential meteors. Okay. Yeah. Um, other government agencies would be involved if there was an impact potent- mm-hmm. that was impending. Um, but from a NASA point of view, detection and risk assessment is okay. what uh, we've been chartered to. Okay. So the particular ATAP project was uh, an Ames grassroots effort. Oh. A team led by Jim Arnold put together the capabilities, starting with what Eric had talked about. Okay. The expertise that Ames has in human spaceflight, you know, the design of reentry systems. Mm-hmm. And the thought was to apply that more broadly to look at these uh, Inter, interplanetary <laughs> objects right. um, because a lot of the technologies and tools that Eric mentioned would be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did make a proposal to NASA headquarters and that basically led to the ATAP project. Wow, that's amazing. All right. Probably also be noted that the inception of ATAP uh, mm-hmm. was not long after the Chelyabinsk event. Which I was going to ask about that. Is it because of that event that you know was the initiator of even a more aggressive effort? Because, you know... That was devastating for a lot of people, but it was also a spectacular event that the world right. probably hasn't seen in the last few decades. Never, because of the prevalence of dash cams right, on the right. cars I during mean, the morning you know, commute. Thank right? God that we had that, and <laughs> yes. then it just went viral on social media. So um, that's right. pretty, pretty interesting that 
It's Cer- perfect timing, I guess. Oh, well, certainly the Chelyabinsk event mm-hmm. uh, woke the world up again, right? right? That happens every yeah. so often. Um, and I think before that, the risk perception mm-hmm. had of the public uh, had had subsided. Mm-hmm. And then with an event like Chelyabinsk, mm-hmm. uh, certainly it's in people's minds again. Uh, so I would say that didn't directly lead to ATAP, but it certainly set the stage for mm-hmm. the effort to start. Now, I, I just have a question because about the actual samples or the type of materials that could be coming in, whether asteroids, I guess, meteorites, comets, whatever. Are you guys looking at the composition to also determine uh, how they burn down, if you will, right? Is that part of the assessment as well, the different types of materials found in these objects? Or is it not really as big of a... It is. No, that's an important consideration, Uh, both from the mass that Mm -hmm. the object brings. It's something like a dust ball or a lightly packed snowball certainly wouldn't have the potential to do damage as a piece of maybe dense stone or iron. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have the meteor crater in Arizona that when you fly over, if you're flying across the country, you can look out the window and Mm -hmm. see it. It's enormous. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was thought to be a mostly iron uh, meteor okay. that hit the ground and it made an enormous hole. Right, right. Uh, so certainly the size is the size is important, the velocity is important, but the ability of the object to withstand the forces mm-hmm. uh, as it comes through the atmosphere depends on its composition. Wow. Hard to tell when it's in space before it hits us. You know, there right. are uh, astronomical techniques where you can make inference about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but most you never of the really t- will know until we actually have a sample. Unless you could visit, right, there are concepts if something was inbound. And, mm-hmm. and we're talking for large objects. The plan would be to detect with decades in advance, okay. right? Because normally we think about the orbits crossing mm-hmm. the Earth's orbit and getting closer and closer. Uh, so there is a potential to you know, have a, a rendezvous mission where you could actually oh. learn a lot about the physical composition. And that is important both into the models that mm-hmm. Eric was talking about, how the object heats, ablates, mm-hmm. um, and then when it breaks up, uh, how it deposits the energy. Or if it penetrates all the way through and hits the mm-hmm. ground and makes a crater. Now, in addition to the assessment tools you're using, like software, are you guys, are we meeting to talk about, like, okay, this is where we are, this is where we need to be, are there uh, workshops or something that the geniuses at NASA are coming together and the community are, are collaborating on? Or how does that, is that something you guys work on too? Yeah, so Donovan could probably speak to to some of the engagement that we have mm-hmm. with the with the Planetary Defense Coordination Office and and its uh, responsibilities. But um, but we host pretty regularly uh, some uh, workshops. Mm-hmm. Most recently, we hosted a workshop on uh, the Tunguska event, which was um, one of the maybe the largest energy event in in recorded history. Right. Um, and that was very productive, and we got to engage with the community on mm-hmm. that. Um, and then uh, once every three years or two years, they have the Planetary Defense Conference, oh, okay. um, which brings together everybody around the world. And that was uh, last year in, mm-hmm. in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we tend to bring a, a good cohort to that uh, conference. Definitely no, wh- great meetings. Uh, to build on a little bit, yeah. uh, inside the U.S. government, mm-hmm. uh, there are exercises where okay. groups will get together from different agencies. It could even, not necessarily just federal, could mm-hmm. be state and local uh, responders. And the idea is to run through hypothetical scenarios. Right. Okay. These aren't real. They're, you know, <laughs> what we, if then, right? Say yeah. <laughs> right. The idea okay. is how would the emergency managers uh, communicate between mm-hmm. the different levels in the government? And an example would be between federal and state. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right? There are certain regulations to enact um, an emergency that you know they would get federal aid. A state mm-hmm. or a municipality would get federal aid. And so let's work out the conversations in a mm-hmm. hypothetical sense mm-hmm. and come up with lessons learned. So these kinds of activities do, in fact, happen right. uh, probably you know, annually or slightly, maybe uh, slightly less frequent than that. And in terms of like community response or, you know, feedback, are, are you guys getting any of that? And does that have any relationship to maybe doing these assessments in different ways? I mean, do you get feedback from the community that's not NASA that encourages or, you know, helps you do your job better with regard to the risk assessments? So you're like the technical community yeah, or the broader? Not, not general public, but these okay. communities you're meeting with for um, workshops and things like the one in Tokyo, like the meetings. What, what kinds of discussions or feedback are you getting? So as part of the Planetary Defense Conference mm-hmm. in Tokyo, there is also a hypothetical scenario. Okay. A few hours at the end of the, each day, right. the, the different participants in the conference break into groups, and they're assigned a role. Okay. And so some of them are the world decision makers, right. and some are the science community, some are the media. Uh-huh. Um, and everyone has to kind of step out of their comfort zone and <laughs> think from a different perspective. The devil's advocate. Yeah. <laughs> right. In fact, very much. And then there are group discussions where... You know, the science community may communicate some information, mm-hmm. and then the decision makers or the media or whatever the other teams would be mm-hmm. might have a different uh, perspective on the events and what we should do about it. Right. Um, so from those, you know, even though it takes a lot of energy to go through a hypothetical scenario, there are key points that are identified, mm-hmm. uh, particularly sensitivities to different mitigation techniques. Mm-hmm. And we haven't really talked about that. But if we did have uh, advance warning a decade mm-hmm. or so, of an object that you know, would cause regional damage mm-hmm. on, on if it hit the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are potentials to be able to slow the asteroid down or move it right. a little bit uh, so that it missed the Earth. Right? 3D space is vast. Yeah. <laughs> and the chances of hitting, you know, having two large objects collide is mm-hmm. pretty remote. Right. Um, and if there was that potential, then uh, mitigation becomes an option. Now, you mentioned that. So what, what kinds of mitigation ideas or proposals are being brought up based on what you guys work on here? Uh, there's a big range. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from parking a small spacecraft just off of a, an asteroid. Mm-hmm. Um, they call that a gravity tractor. Oh, so wow. that okay. the spacecraft gravity, even though it's very small compared to the asteroid, mm-hmm. it acts over a very long time. Right. And so it's possible theoretically possible, we've never done it, uh, to move the asteroid just a little bit. Just Just enough to miss us. Just a little bit, right. (laughs) The Earth moves pretty fast, right, in its orbit around the sun, Mm -hmm. and it's okay if the trajectories cross, we just don't want them to cross at the same time. Right, okay, I gotcha. So slowing it down minutes over a 10-year period Mm -hmm. or speeding it up is is all it needs to to happen to get it to miss. Now, does NASA have a mission to do any of that, or missions planned for that, or? Um, we don't have a gravity tractor per okay. se. Okay. There but are, that's just something you could think about for future. Right, that's one of the concepts. Okay. Um, other concepts of mitigation are kinetic impactors, where oh, we right. take some human-made object mm-hmm. and impact the <laughs> asteroid as fast as we can with right. as much momentum. Again, just to nudge it. Mm-hmm. And you're not pushing it sideways so that it misses. You're trying to slow it down or speed it up. Okay. You know, using its own motion to, to try to help uh, miss the Earth. Yeah, we're not like shooting at it or, you know. Well, 
There are also uh, nuclear-based uh, mitigation proposals. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, a lot of issues and concerns globally about oh, sending <laughs> those kinds of devices to space. Okay. Um, so, so there's a range, right? And part of the concern and what these exercises actually get at mm-hmm. are what are the sensitivities uh, globally mm-hmm. to these kinds of activities. And okay. a lot of it has to do as well with how how much time do you have? And right, so that's what I was going to say. Like the the sooner you, you detect <laughs> it, uh, the more options you have, uh, right? And probably the the cleaner options that you have. Mm-hmm. That, um, very critical. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. If you only had a year, then yeah. a year's warning, there would Oof. be no way that a gravity tractor could work. For right. example. Because we're talking about a couple decades, well, a decade minimally. Well, well that would be, uh, depends on the size, depends mm-hmm. on the orbit, the, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of the technical parameters on how viable the different techniques are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point was just that there are a range of mm-hmm. possible mitigation options. And mm-hmm. as Eric pointed out, with reduced warning time, <laughs> those option, that option space shrinks. Yeah. And, and as a last resort, we evacuate the, the area. And so the good news mm-hmm. from an Earth's point of view mm-hmm. is that we have an atmosphere. Right. And the atmosphere Thank is, God for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. yes. Both from a protection, protection. sustaining right. <laughs> capability, but yeah, yeah. it also is very effective. Uh, we right. get hit by cushions that blow a little bit. Uh, tremendously. <laughs> uh, we get hit by objects every day. Yeah. Right. Uh, literally every day. Mm-hmm. Um, not at the size of Chelyabinsk or Tunguska. Right. Um, those are definitely more on the hundred hundred two thousand year mm-hmm. time frames. Um, but we're getting hit all the time. And mm-hmm. the atmosphere creates just the light show for right. us. Objects that could potentially cause damage if they got to the ground mm-hmm. are stopped very high. The other nice things, you know, we have a lot of water, mm-hmm. and so most of our planet is uninhabited, which means most of the impact sites would be not where we had high concentrations of people. Mm-hmm. So we're really talking about remote events. Right, right. right. Not only the- Very isolated. Yeah. And even if something was to happen, the chances that it would occur you know, near a highly populated city are, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, look at the globe. Even right? more, less of a... Exactly, okay. yeah. And if it was in a remote area that was inhabited, you could potentially move the people outside of the impact zone, mm-hmm. right? Obviously infrastructure, but, but as far as loss of life, mm-hmm. um, a large degree of that could probably be mitigated. Mm-hmm. Take Chelyabinsk, for example, mm-hmm. about a thousand hospitalizations, and almost all of them were glass breakage. Yeah, that's what I remember reading. So if they had warning and they had some advance notice to stay away from the windows, mm-hmm. uh, that number could have been reduced. But not creating like asteroid-proof windows. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of energy. It takes a lot of uh, Yeah, it was mostly the sound, sound waves, right, or of the impact. Uh, air pressure. Air yeah. pressure, I right. guess. Okay. It was a, a large sound, right. Right. Um, as the object broke up, Eric was talking about mm-hmm. the energy. It slows The object slows down when it breaks up. And that energy has to go somewhere, and it goes into a sound wave. It's a little stronger than a sound mm-hmm. wave, closer to a, an explosion, perhaps. Right. Um, and that pressure wave is what did most of the damage in Chelyabinsk. And for reference, the mm-hmm. Chelyabinsk object was thought to be about 20 meters um, when it when it came oh, in, and, wow. and probably no more than about a meter um, worth of material that um, was found. survived to the ground. So right. that just gives you an idea of how how much that atmosphere yeah. um, is is uh, protecting. It's pretty us remarkable. It burned off like 95 percent of it. Yeah, that's insane. Wow. So in terms of the knowledge or the results of your assessments, what does NASA plan to do with that information? Um, I guess, you know, from your perspective, at least, and then we'll go to Eric because his is a little, it's very similar, but what are you guys going to use that right. data for? Well, certainly these are different 
perspective, pieces of the mm-hmm. integrated puzzle. Um, right. So there is a national, basically an asteroid response plan mm-hmm. um, that sets up a national strategy. And so we're not directly involved in that so okay. much, but we provide the information, the risk information and sensitivities to NASA headquarters, mm-hmm. which is then representative um, in this action plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a couple of different things from a risk perspective, you know, informing in advance decision options, mm-hmm. risk options, and then also telling the science community or the spacecraft community, what's important? What would we need to know about an object to be Absolutely. able to determine its risk? Right. Uh, so it's a lot of decision support in advance. Okay. And then from your perspective, Eric, what do you hope or what will be kind of the primary benefit for the information you're gathering on yes. your work? Externally, uh, the stuff that we do, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're kind of doing some fundamental research. Uh, right. And so uh, the outputs from what we're doing has the potential to benefit the community. You know, other people can can look at our work and, and try to build on that. So that's one um, avenue kind of where uh, I think this NASA uh, supported work is is just supporting the, the community and, mm-hmm. and the collective understanding of this very difficult problem. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's <and>, very challenging. <laughs> you know, and then the other kind of benefit that we've realized is is this is about as challenging, as you say, um, as entry physics can get. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. These are uh, incredibly unbelievable um, speeds that we're dealing mm-hmm. with and incredible uh, mass you know, removal and, and all of these phenomena mm-hmm. are, are just like we would deal with with spacecraft, but mm-hmm. on an extreme scale. Um, so they really stress all of our tools and all of our knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think we're we're being forced to grow the tools and mm-hmm. and to 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 revamp some of our understanding of some mm-hmm. of the physics here or or to go out and and seek new ways to, mm-hmm. to do the physics and um, you know that 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 will benefit um, just our our general capability um, for modeling entry as well, well I think it's commendable to, to think wow you know NASA's doing you know the obvious space exploration earth science maybe not so obvious um, aeronautics research but Asteroid detection and risk assessment. That is freaking awesome. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, you're saving potentially millions, billions of lives by just understanding what flies through our trajectory. And not only that, but what you do today will be the stepping stone for how we can mitigate that stuff. So do you sleep at night better or worse? <laughs> because this responsibility is on your shoulders. <laughs> Well, I, I certainly go to sleep at night feeling lucky that I get to work on such an interesting problem. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, I think, as Donovan was saying, the, the more you work on this, um, the more you appreciate uh, how infrequent these are and, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and how, uh, um, how well our, our atmosphere um, has uh, protected us from, mm-hmm. from these kinds of events. So mm-hmm. um, I, I sleep pretty well. <laughs> well, I do now, knowing you guys are on top of this. <laughs> it has been a great project. It's been a real, yeah, a real gift to be able I to work really, on this. I think so too. And, and through that community engagement, we we find a lot of people that like this problem mm-hmm. so much that they do it as a hobby because oh, there wow. there isn't a lot of um, funding, I would say, uh, through other means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I would say that they tend to be. Happy that NASA is investing in this, absolutely, um, and to, to have a a project which is continually working on the problem. 
Well, you guys have been amazing, and I'm still looking forward to understanding a little bit more. So, um, is there anything that you would add to this conversation to let our listeners know not to be afraid, or <laughs> maybe not that, but any advice or any encouragement to what you're working on so that it's not something they have to worry about right now? <laughs> There's certainly a lot of uh, videos and information. There's <laughs> right. stories out. So, there are ways that uh, anyone interested can find out more about okay. the specific work, the simulations we do. And there are NASA resources for that. Absolutely. But one thing that was told to me early on in the Mm -hmm. project is this is a natural disaster that we could potentially know about in advance Mm -hmm. and do something about. Absolutely. And arguably the only natural disaster that we could mitigate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So put the infrequency on top of the potential to actually do something about it. It is a threat that we want to be aware of. Mm -hmm. And the ability to mitigate depends on knowing Mm-hmm. These, this can happen, and then having some predetermined strategies for dealing with it. And so that's really part of the, the effort of this project mm-hmm. in the global U.S. Uh, strategy. Go NASA. That's awesome. You've been listening to the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast. If you have any questions, on Twitter, we're at NASA Ames, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Remember, we are a NASA podcast, but we aren't the only NASA podcast. So don't forget to check out our friends at Houston We Have a Podcast. And there's also Gravity Assist and This Week at NASA. And if you're a music fan, don't forget to check out Third Rock Radio. The best way to capture all of the content is to subscribe to our Omnibus RSS feed called NASA Cast. Or visit the NASA app on iOS, Android, or anywhere you find your apps. (laughs) 